lifetimes of listening. I mean, there's times I just listen to that and just cry by myself, you know? George and Ira Gershwin have my entire heart. <laughs> and he put on Rhapsody in Blue. And I just was taken over by that music. I mean, I think everyone in my family has a very large variety of the type of music we listen to. I guess a lot of these songs bring up the connotation of freedom for me, like expansiveness. Lifetimes of Listening. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory podcast, an outgrowth of the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. I'm Brian Moon, an Associate Professor of Practice at the School of Music at the University of Arizona, where I'm the coordinator for music gen ed at the Fred Fox School of Music. And I'm Dan Cruz. I'm an alum of the University of Arizona School of Music. I'm pretty involved in musical research of various sorts, uh, teaching now and then, documentary work, and uh, an announcer and host on a local public radio station as well. So what's this uh, program all about? Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. Here's a little taste of what to expect in this episode. My first most profound musical memory, being a child of the 70s and being completely enamored with the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. Uh, but also there was this, this deep emotionality to it that was very soothing and very healing for me. That's just a brief excerpt of one of the interviews we'll be hearing today on this episode of Lifetimes of Listening. We'll hear more of that really interesting musical memory in just a couple of minutes, and we'll discuss it with a musical scholar who will be our guest and who will reflect on its meaning and significance. This project and this podcast collects musical memories from people. They tell us their stories and, and about these experiences with music that have stayed with them over time, and we gather them and post them in the digital archive at Lifetimes of Listening and uh, on the website, and then we collect them and bring them here to the podcast and bring in people with interesting perspectives to help us understand how these Musical memories have gained meaning in people's lives. And speaking of that, coming up in just a minute here, a fascinating conversation with a noted music theorist about different uh, qualities or sounds of aspect of music and how they affect people and people's musical memories in different ways. Stay with us for that. So this episode of Lifetimes of Listening looks at some things about music, and, and Brian and I, frankly, well, we weren't quite sure how to refer to this, right? Qualities of music, aspects of music. Uh, Musical elements, sounds. It, it was hard to figure out how to describe this, but we are aware that many people respond to music and have these rich musical memories associated with some aspect of the sound and the way that they're perceiving the sound in a moment. So we were trying to come up with a term that encapsulates all of those types of reactions. Um, and and we, I, I'm not sure that we've I'm <laughs> not sure we on have it. either. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's something about the sounds of music and certain aspects of the sounds of music that people respond to in very pronounced ways. And those are the basis for the uh, musical memories we're going to share today, right? Right. Could you have an example of that that'll help us uh, get a sense for it? I, I do. When I was a teenager, this is a kind of a wacky story. My friend Ken and I were on his front porch and we'd been listening to uh, to music by Dave Brubeck, 
who plays, you know, played in all sorts of odd time signatures. And somehow Ken and I got into this idea of how about if you tried to play in 5-4 and 3-4 at the same time and you put 5 over 3, what would that sound like? And we did this odd experiment where we realized that the common denominator between 5 and 3 would be 15. So if you took 15 of the slats on his front porch and divided it into a group of 5 and a group of 3 and then put a beat on each of the 1, the 6, the 11, the 1, the 4, the 8, you, you get where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. What would that sound like? And somehow we came up out of that with what 5 over 3 sounds like, which, by the way, is... You can still do it today. And that was my introduction to how fascinated I was with this particular aspect of musical sound, which is odd meters and polyrhythms. So that's my story uh, to contribute to the that, episode today. Dan, that explains so much yeah, to I'm me. Sure. About <laughs> but this is why you are a drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, you may be a drummer. If, well, I, you know, my, I have a very similar kind of uh, experiential sort of thing. I So I'm a guitarist. I um, And when I was in college, the Indigo Girls who went to school, um, one of the Indigo Girls went to the same college that I did. And there was a moment where their song Closer to Fine came out where pretty much if you were strumming guitar around a circle with people, somebody particularly right here at the school where uh, where they were situated and they still regularly performed in coffee shops, somebody would start playing their song Closer to Fine. Closer to Fine uses a C add two chord, which guitarist their fingers already are grabbing it sure um it's and, and uh, and that was my introduction to add to chords chords that that you know a major chord that has the second in it up higher so that it rings nicely on a guitar hmm. and some I, some guitars might call it a, a c, c c9 c add nine or yes c plus nine, right. c, c plus nine different ways to to talk about I, well music theorists have very strong opinions about it but i this this idea of getting into this sound unlocked harmony on the guitar for me in some mm. ways i, I because mm. i found all of the other ways that you could grab a, a plus two chord mm. uh and um and then i started noticing the songs that had that that uh, chord it was a very common chord and, and among them the indigo girls among said. among them the right. indigo girls and uh and a lot of guitarists uh find this chord and use this chord and transition in in really interesting ways and I just I love the sound of it, cool. and so that's that. Uh, I, I have this strong memory of of this discovery of the sound on an instrument, um, and and in songs that that uh, stays with me today. So that sort of experience and that sort of memory is what today's episode of Lifetimes of Listening is all about. And we've got a special guest, uh, Professor Donald Trout a music theorist at the University of Arizona. And we're going to talk with him a little bit about some musical memories that relate to those special sounds, those special aspects of music that create strong reactions and strong musical memories that we're going to feature on today's podcast. So we're here at the University of Arizona School of Music, and we have a guest for um, this episode of our Lifetimes of Listening podcast. Our guest is Don Trout, who's a music theorist and a professor of music theory at the University of Arizona. Don, thanks for being with us on the podcast. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your 
interest in music theory, how that came about, what your areas of expertise, research, maybe publications, sorts of courses you teach, anything that would help us to understand your uh, familiar, okay. your expertise. Okay, sure. Well, I, I um, got into music theory because I started my undergraduate in Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin and uh, was, you know, planning to be a high school band and or choir director. So, of course, as, as a music major, I was taking the required courses, music theory among them, and was always quite good at it and encouraged to, you know, do more with it. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I eventually changed my major from music ed to Bachelor of Arts in music theory. Mm. And um, completely... Was there a particular moment when that kind of Yes, happened? it's funny you should ask. There is this, this uh, there was a very particular moment. The first time as a music ed major, the first time I went to a school to sort of shadow the band director. I wasn't student teaching or anything. I was just sort of hanging around and seeing what being a band director is all about. And he asked me to go help the drums tune their snare drums. Now, I did not know it was possible to tune a snare drum. <laughs> how, how would you know if you weren't a percussionist? Well, right, exactly. So this consisted of bang, 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 and then crank you crank these things to make sure, I guess, that there's a uniform tension across the drum head. And that, I don't know, I was just, I think I switched majors the next day. It, it was, you know, and I mean, I have nothing against drums. I love the drums, but it just was an uh, eye-opener uh. to, to see all of the different elements that I, you know, I had never thought of having been in high school band and, Interesting. and that kind of yeah. thing. So, um, so where do your efforts uh, fall today? What sorts of research have you done? What sorts of courses do you most enjoy teaching? So I, um, I have a research background in the music of Igor Stravinsky. Uh, so I've worked on his music for years now, primarily kind of the neoclassic music where there was this period in his life where he was borrowing music from older styles, Bach, Haydn, Mozart, and but making it into a very contemporary 20th century style. Uh, so I, I work on that music a lot and kind of see how old and new come together. Um, I also do work on popular music. So I have um, studied... Um, accent patterns that can be used as hooks. Um, as you know, you and I did an earworms project together, which was uh, kind of tied to that work as well. And The idea um, being that there are certain things about certain types of music that stick in people's heads for long periods of time. Exactly And, and you right. came up with several, yeah, several I, of those that were very interesting. I was interesting. interested, yeah. and that was my role in that project as well. Like, yeah. what is it musically about these things that are getting stuck in people's head that is there something about the music itself that makes them particularly yeah, appealing yeah. or sticky? I was fortunate too to be invited by you to sit in on a course you taught a few years ago, which had been two or three years, uh, analysis of rock music, right. a graduate level a seminar. And boy, I would have never imagined sitting in a room with a bunch of mostly doctoral students in music theory, how deeply one could go into the analysis of rock music right. and some of the sophistication that some rock artists, write, songwriters and so forth, no, bring exactly to their right. music. Yeah. yeah, well, and, and, you know, that's the, from a theorist's perspective, 
rock music is uh, just another flavor of tonality. Um, you know, there's Haydn and Mozart, there's uh, jazz repertoire, and there's rock repertoire. And so all of these repertoires are using the same 12 notes and, and in a lot of ways, the same chords, but they're using them in a lot of different ways. Uh, so so th- this, that actually um, is partly why we wanted you here today. If, um, if you could take some of your expertise at being able to parse out structures of sound um, and, and bring them to musical memories. We, we, we have noticed as we're collecting and compiling this archive of musical memories that a lot of people are aware of specific aspects of a, a musical sound, a, an element, a component that is at the heart of what they're responding to. And um, and we were hoping that we could play some of those for you today, right? Right. And um, and get your opinion about them. Yeah. That, that, uh, Just for background, when we interviewed these three, we didn't go at them with the question, "What aspect of music most excites you, or do you remember best?" We simply said, "Share a musical memory." And in these three instances, each of them shared something pretty revealing about their own kind of wow, this about music, this okay. thing about music really has done something for me. It's been sure. a growth step for me or deeper understanding or appreciation of music in some way. So shall we move so, on to listening to our interviews? Yes. Uh, so um, this first interview you conducted, would you introduce us to Tim? Yeah, Tim Lohman is a fellow I've known for some years. He's actually a uh, retired professor of physiology here at the University of Arizona um, in his late 70s, I believe. <clears throat> and I asked him to share with me a musical memory. He wound up in the course of 20 minutes sharing three or four, and actually they're all encapsulated in this roughly two-minute musical memory that Tim shared with us. So let's give it a listen and see what Don has to say about this. I'm Tim Lohman, and I grew up in New Jersey and moved to Illinois, then Arizona. When I was about 16 years old, and my friend Dick Robertson invited me to his house. He had a hi-fi system back in those days, 1960-57, and he put on Rhapsody in Blue. And I just was taken over by that music. Uh, uh, it just opened me up to the beauty of music. Another experience two years later was I'm a freshman in college. My roommate across the hall pulls out a drawer, and there's a little hi-fi system, record player, and he puts on William Tell Overture. Again, it just penetrates my being. It, it's, there's not a lot of detail about that. It's just the music itself and its effect on me. And I'm just grateful. Early, earlier than that, I heard Night and Day, somewhere around fifth grade, sixth grade. I loved that music. Uh, again, that's, that's a certain kind of sound that Cole Porter, Gershwin, a certain kind of harmony that I think uh, really means a lot to me. And then another, uh, another memory is uh, about Music Man and uh, the Barbershop Quartet and Lila Rose. And again, it's not a one-time thing. It's just incredible harmony of the barbershop guys. It just feels rich. It feels um, empowering. It feels um, uh, gratitude. There's a lot of gratitude that I see how enriched I have been by my choices and by carrying music into my life. Uh, so I have a, I, I just am grateful as I'm talking here, grateful 
for that um, listening ability. Yeah, I think I think they just uh, give me a sense of the there's great tragedy in this world and life and suffering, and yet there's great beauty. And it, it's helped to balance my perception of the world. Take time, I tell myself, to take in the beauty of the world. And it's nature to me and it's music, the two great beauties. Any thoughts on that, Don? He covers a lot of ground there. He covers Tim. a lot of ground, yeah, but what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful story. And what a, I mean, obviously that's a very uh, emotionally deep and thoughtful person. I don't know. It just sounds like in his life he he was he was ready for some for for music to be uh, another way of helping him be in touch with what are clearly I don't know. He seems like he has a strong heart and a strong emotional connection uh, with himself and with the world around him, and music played into that. And, and as well as he can, he's connecting it to something about the harmony that he hears, though he, he doesn't speak about harmony in technical terms. Right, the, the, terms. the close harmony of the barbershop quartet or the, uh, uh, the uh, way that a Cole Porter chord progression kind of, and, and I'm putting some of these words in his mouth, but wash over him a little bit. I, I, I'm, I was... Uh, I, I was I was wondering about the you know the, you know like the theories the various theories of uh, emotion or affect affects and harmony and the way that that literally does play out in in lives um, in a lot of experiences and it seems like this but it, it seems like he's getting at that a little yeah yeah um, I don't know I mean uh, you know barbershop quartet has a lot of diminished harmonies typically that are dissonant but then they resolve really sweetly you know that's definitely something that he can you know rhapsody in blue i'm thinking of um just a, a kind of the same concept with what we would call an appoggiatura or a suspension just uh dissonances that uh, are uncomfortable for a moment but you you know the resolution is going to come and uh it's that anticipation that that you really savor uh you 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 love the feeling of the anticipation and then you savor the actual resolution when it does finally come and so, those are and those are things that were that we would hear in these pieces of music that he shared with us the i think of, so yeah for sure harmonic tension resolution and the good feeling that that gives us which That's he right. just revels in in that's right. Talking yeah. about this, yeah. I mean, there's there's also to me in in that list as well uh, some orchestrational, like he you know clearly is responding to things that are kind of lush and full. You know, he's not mentioning a Mozart piano sonata or uh, uh, just a jazz guitar solo or anything like that. It's all it's all things that are very rich the the orchestration matches the the richness of the harmony there was one other um example that he gave that i didn't include in this shortened version and it was the music of i don't know if you know the artist the recording artist montavani i mean i've heard the name and montavani was an orchestra yeah uh, conducted by a gentleman named montavani big huge string orchestra that played these very lush arrangements of popular songs right and he he resonated with those pretty sure, strongly. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, and and you know, given the time period when he was growing up, that sure. 
that definitely do, makes sense. Do you think people, uh, and, and like, so now I'm asking you to <laughs> maybe go a little beyond your expertise, but is it, is it harmony, um, which uh, this, this excerpt sort of is highlighting, or is it uh, you're, you're, uh, you're drawn to uh, timbrel, to orchestration, to the, the wash of the whole? I wonder, because I, I was thinking this, the same thing, but it has to be a combination, I think, because even if the, you know, even if the harmony is not the driving force of the music, it still needs to be interesting enough and really it's the dissonances uh the suspensions and the anticipations that that come across so well with a big string orchestra or a quartet of voices where one person can hold the note of resolution while another person holds a dissonant note above it that then eventually resolves down right it's very difficult to make that happen with just a right like an acoustic guitar or with a piano um and so it's these sustained instruments violins the strings in general or voices i I don't i think people think of that as harmony right right when really what they're talking about is the timbre or the orchestration as much as what the actual chords are that they're hearing but at the heart of of uh of this is also you know so it's the quartet or it's the the one part of a larger orchestra that's able to hold you know the melodic instrument that's able to hold the 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 pitches in tension and then to resolve that speaks to music being something greater than, than the parts that you know the individual parts that bigger than the whole um yeah, they're, they're, I'm, I'm, I want to, <laughs> I want to make a metaphor. This, you know, this is, <laughs> and thus, <laughs> and therefore, you know, uh, all all music makes the world better. Well, and <laughs> I mean, you know, what like, uh, you know, there are evolutionary biologists probably would argue that voice, right, is is the one instrument that we all carry around with us, and it's one of the instruments that can sustain, and so. I think there's just a stronger not not that there's a stronger connection to vocal music, but music that has some sustain to it. I just I think it conjures up stronger emotional reactions um, oh. in some ways. That's I yeah, no, that's cool. I know I like that, but <laughs> this is all this is this is fascinating. Yeah, so Tim is going to be. Really intrigued to hear about our conversation about his memories. Well, that's sure. great. I loved hearing his memories. That yeah, was fantastic. Yeah. So let's move on to the next yeah, uh, interview. Yes. Number two is is also one that I conducted with a gentleman um, who's a musician, as as you'll mention, he's a guitarist. And as a teenager, he had this really wonderful kind of enlightening experience about a certain type of music that uh, really changed him in some significant ways. So let's listen next to uh, Bruce Blackstone. Well, my name is Bruce Blackstone. I'm, I'm 62 years old. Uh, I have been a lover of music my whole life and have always um, been involved in one way or another with music, including um, being a musician. My first most profound musical memory being a child of the 70s and being completely enamored with the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. A family moves into the apartment next door. 
His name was Joel Deutsch. He's a couple of years older, and of course, it's like, hey, man, what bands are you into? Blah, blah, blah. I tell him, you know, Stones, Led Zeppelin. He's like, you know, what are your favorite songs, man? And I tell him these songs, and he says, dude, those are blues songs. They're the same. And I say, no, they're not. And he goes, go listen to them, and we'll talk. I come back, and I'm like, yeah. You kind of, they have a predictability to them. They're all, I mean, now I know they're all 12-bar blues. Any, mu- any musician who knows anything knows what a 1-4-5 is. 1-4-5, 12-bar blues. And so I kept, kept listening to it un- un- until I finally got it. And it was really healing for me because one of the things that I realized why I was so enamored of the blues, you can, you can be listening to a blues recording you've never heard of and you can feel when they're going to do a break. You can feel when the end comes. So there was this predictability to it, uh, but also there was this, this deep emotionality to it that was very soothing and very healing for me. Completely different story mm-hmm. about a completely different experience of music. And uh, Don, any, yeah, any thoughts on Yeah, different genre, right? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I also I have to wonder about the lives of people just, just in general. I mean, I don't want to take your podcast in a whole different direction, but there's... I literally did not hear any classical music until I was 18 years old. So for to listen to your first uh, person, you know, talk about hearing uh, Rhapsody in Blue at whatever age, or I, I just, there's, you know, whatever led to that is socioeconomic situations or whatever play into what people's musical backgrounds are going to be. So that's one thing that, that comes to mind. Um, in terms of the, the, the music itself, yeah, this is actually something I've kind of been thinking about. Uh, the Stones and Zeppelin being blues. And sure, yeah, so he, he, he mentions predictability, um, which cut, gets back to what we were talking about before with anticipation. And, and so this is, you know, this is a person that it just sounds like he enjoys the predictability and he, he said deep emotional soothing right so he he puts it on and it doesn't mean he he loves it deeply obviously but uh it's a it's a different kind of relationship with the music or a different kind of desire that he wants to get out of the music as a theorist i would uh i would want to talk about the blues um everyone says yeah the rolling stones that's just blues but uh, I guess it depends what your definition of the blues. I mean, to me, the blues is a particular chord progression mm-hmm. as well as lyrical structure and phrasing structure. And I'm sure there are Rolling Stone songs that follow that a lot, but I don't know that many that follow it. Yeah, exactly. My sense is that the earlier recordings of the Stones, Led Zeppelin, relied somewhat heavily on 
the, so, the blues yeah, genre, so, the, the love of American <clears throat> blues, Chuck Berry, these great so, artists yeah, in the, the 50s. So yeah. just, just as for context, the Rolling Stones began as a, as a sort of, uh, not as an outward-facing rock group, but as a, as a blues, you know, it's just guys that got around and they tried to mimic the sound of old blues recordings, you know, and, they, and so they were sitting around and they recorded that, and there were clubs in London that facilitated them performing, and, and they precede, of course, the, the Led Zeppelin uh, and Jimmy Page, who was able to exist on that sort of blues, you know, it could sound just like, uh, you know, any, any blues record f- from America from the 30s, 40s, and 50s uh, on guitar. Uh, it, but then they they started recording and and it does become something else. So there are cases of Led Zeppelin, you know, a whole lot of love or something, a, a song exactly that right. that that's like you know this is a cover song. That, you know that we could think of it nowadays. We think of it, oh yeah, it's a cover song. And what was interesting is for so many listeners, uh, perhaps Bruce, or, uh, for so many listeners, they didn't know the original, so it wasn't a cover. It was sort of like, nope, this is it. You know, And to me, that was the case. I mean, I didn't know the original. Uh, I, I actually did know a couple, of, a couple of songs, but didn't even make the connection. Like, I knew about Robert Johnson, had a Robert Johnson record from when I was like 12 years old, and it was a decade or more before I realized that... Uh, uh, the Chicago, uh, what's the, do you, do the, fam- the, uh, good, good old Chicago or, uh, Sweet Home Chicago, Sweet Home Chicago right. was a Robert Johnson song. <laughs> like that was yeah, mind that melting to me sure. till, you know, like he, he did that in the thirties. And for me, that was just, that was a blues brother so, song. So, <laughs> yeah, know? right. Exactly. So well, what is your definition of the blues? Well, it's the same, th- same thing. It's, it's this, this formal structure, uh, this formal structure that, uh, has so much expressive weight to it that there, there, there's something that it's a it's a simple pattern that carries profound emotion that 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 has been put in it um, and has a particular context you know a historical context based in uh, in black culture right. going way back uh, way back all the way back to Africa. Um, and and that is manifested in American popular music in in a really profound way, but um, uh, but then keeps popping up and taking roots in new scenes and venues. Uh, so like like the London scene that 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 came in with the British invasion, uh, came back to America with the British invasion and, and just really changed rock in the '60s. Yeah. So, so two things two things. Uh, uh, have struck me right now. One is that Bruce, without without realizing it at the time, at the age of sixteen, was latching onto a series of songs by a couple of different, happened to be British artists, that all had this thing in common that he didn't know, and it took his new next door neighbor, a couple years old to him, who apparently had listened to enough music and studied it closely enough to realize what this was all about, to say to him, don't you get it? They're all the same song. Hmm. They just sound different from one another. And Bruce, on listening closely, kind of gets that. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's that chord. It goes up to that one. And there's a similarity. The other thing that impresses me, and I've been saying this for years, is that isn't it a marvelous thing that people keep recording the blues? How many blues songs have been recorded? How many tens of thousands? And people keep making this particular genre of music, yeah. even though it's pretty much one four one four five four one over 12 bars, again and again and again. It's a, there's something about that 
that it can be remade so many different ways and so expressively that it's still here after yeah. all these decades and decades. Yeah, <laughs> we're no, still we're still listening to the blues with the same fascination. <coughs> as no we two were. are exactly the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. It's. It's. I mean. It's. It's a. It's a wonderful. Um, mold, you know, just like us, uh, if you were a Mozart or a Haydn sitting down to write a symphony, it's like, okay, I'm going to do, I mean, they didn't call it sonata form necessarily then, but they knew exactly what to do because that's what hundreds of other pieces already did. It's, it's, this, a, it's, it's a convention. This, so exactly right. Yes, yeah, a musical exactly convention. Right. And that's that the kinds of things that we teach in our classes is these are the conventions of this style. These are the conventions of that style. And it doesn't mean they have to be constrictive, but uh, you should know about them um, before you start there, creating and, your own stuff. And there's also an element here, and I, I uh, you know, so I mentioned the, the association between Robert Johnson and this, this one song, but there, there's also this reality that sometimes I, I find myself doing this, like I, there are songs that I really enjoy and love and miss basic details until somebody points it out like oh of course sure and then i'm like oh wait yeah that is just a you know nothing but a simple scale or whatever right. or or uh uh you know uh, uh eleanor rigby's two you know basically a two-court song it's like what no it is wait oh oh yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, like yeah. The, 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 those 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 observations that somebody else has to just sort of I, I, have you ever found yourself like having just those some, something that just so basic about a song's structure? Well, for, me, for me, it's always been lyrics. I'll listen to songs for years, decades, before I listen to the lyrics. And yeah. I'll love a song for 40 years. I have many songs like this. And I'll one day say, I think I'll listen to the lyrics. And I realize I've never listened to them and that they add a whole new level of profound <laughs> understanding and enjoyment for yeah. me to, to finally focus on the lyrics because I'm listening to rhythm and, and texture and harmony and things like this. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same way with the lyrics uh, for the most part. Yeah. Just starting to now become more aware of uh, them and how intricate they can be. Yeah. So let's, let's listen to a third musical memory, and, and we're going to let Brian introduce this. We're so grateful to Arizona Arts, who have introduced us to some musicians we might not have been able to interview otherwise, including David Harrington, who was so generous with his time that he uh, gave us uh, you know, an extended 30, 45-minute interview that had, it was so rich and it contained so many musical memories. Um, this particular musical memory from his longer interview is about a famous chord from a famous piece of music that he, that inspired him to, uh, for his passion for string quartets. I'm David Harrington, founder, violinist, artistic director with Kronos uh, Quartet. I don't think I know any more about music than the next person. I think it is mysterious. How does it work? How does it work? As a musician, I've always relied on my musical memories and, and um, reference points of sound. Well, at age 12, I was reading a biography of Beethoven, and I'd come across the late quartets, and there was this kind of reverence for the late quartets. I had no idea what a late quartet was, right? 
So I thought, okay, I'm going to find out what a light quartet is. And I remember the moment I first heard the E-flat major opening chord of Opus 127, the first of Beethoven's late quartets. That's the first time I recall not having any choice, but I had to learn how to make that sound. No choice. It was, it was like it was so incredibly beautiful and human and thick and warm, and, and it just sounded right to me. I think what I'm hearing is the resonance of that chord. And uh, I've listened to countless other recordings of that opening chord. I know the balance of the chord. I mean, it's just embedded in my heart. <laughs> but it was, it, it was that, that kind of power and intimacy of the E-flat major chord that, that I can hear that sound right now. I carry that with me every, every day. Yeah, so, so that's uh, a story about having a specific sound. Like he said, he carries it with him every day. And I'm primarily referring to the timbre of the first time he heard it, right? First, yeah, the first recording, uh, I believe from the context of the larger discussion, it was the first recording that he listened to that just drove him to mm-hmm. his great love. And, and, in, and in the longer version, he, um, he speaks of how that led him to want to be in a string quartet and to uh, bring his friends around and gather, gather the music and, and uh, play through. <laughs> they, they played right. through that. Sure yeah, I guess. I mean, that's that's um, that's a, a motivation to like you. You need a community of people, right, to recreate what he wanted to recreate based on what he had heard, and so that's that's one element of it. That that it wasn't something he could do on his own because it was from a quartet, and so he had to seek out others. Um, but hmm. I don't. Let me ask a technical question. Is, as a music theorist, is there something about an E-flat chord played in a certain configuration by a string quartet that has some magical resonance to it? Do you know? Is it, is it the way the voicing well, of the chord in this particular writing by Beethoven? I don't know, yeah. but it does strike me that, um, so there's, there's that piece, there's the Eroica Symphony that famously starts with two E-flat major chords, boom, boom. And then a couple decades later, maybe a few decades later, uh, Wagner starts his four opera um, ring cycle with Das Rheingold, which, if you know, is it's just... So the opening scene is just sort of these... Um, Oh, I'm going to mess it up, but it's it's it starts with a long E flat pedal and long five. It's very long and it arpeggi eventually arpeggiates this long E flat major chord. Um, I remember in grad school, me and some friends had a joke about E flat major. We think we think eruption by Eddie Van Halen uh, <laughs> is basically an E flat. So it was like E flat was, you know, sort of the 
center of the musical universe somehow. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a strange it's a strange thing. I'm going to ask a question, and I'll edit it out if it's a really stupid question later on. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is in what key? C minor. Yeah. Yeah. Da 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 da. What is that note? Would that be an mm-hmm. E flat? It is. Yeah. <laughs> From five down to the flat three. Right. There's an, there's another E flat at a pivotal opening of a piece of well, music. Well, that's right. Yeah. And at that point, the piece could easily be in E flat major it, because all you've right. heard is, that's, is that's a matter of some debate. Exactly. Yeah, what do those three notes really suggest to us? Yeah. Uh, harmonically, tonally speaking. Yeah. Do, do you know one thing about his story that um, that I'm r- responding to, or that is making me think? He, he he speaks of carrying this chord around with him, the the balanced chord, knowing exactly, you know, how loud the cello needs to be in relation to the viola and the and the violins and the structure of that, and carrying that inside him. And um, and I've I've you know I know uh, I heard another story, um, an acquaintance of mine, Mary Lou Prince, was one of Nadi Boulanger's last uh, last students, and she told the story of her first meeting of Nadia Boulanger, and Nadia Boulanger sat at a piano well away from her and played something and wanted her to play it back, you know, just, and it was just the assumption that her ear would be good enough to play a complex, and so she, and she could, and and she said, but she could because she always carried uh, an A440 with her, (laughs) that that was just something that she carried, and I, um, and so I, I, I ask this kind of to both of you as pe- people who've thought a lot about wor- earworms and, and stuff that <laughs> sure. sticks with you. You know, I, uh, uh, this idea of, of carrying a harmony with you or carrying a sound with you inside and, and, and the ability of that to be perfect, even for people without perfect pitch, is something which I, I'm not, I don't believe David Harrington has. I don't believe even, I'm not sure if Mary Prince has or, or, or does not, but... Um, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, my only I mean, if you're tuning to A four forty throughout your whole life, you're going to have a lot of A four. You're going to have a pretty strong sense of what A four forty is. Yeah, maybe there's something about E flat being a tritone away from A four forty that makes it <laughs> stick with people. I have no idea. That's, but yeah. you know, th- I, I feel like there are certain first chords. Like he's talking about a first chord. Uh, Symphony of Psalms by Stravinsky has a first chord that's very famous. It's an E minor chord, but it's got, you know, more instruments are playing the chordal third G than any of the other notes. And so it's it's not orchestrated like you would a normal hmm. E minor chord. Hard Day's Night, that opening chord, right, is a real yeah. famous one that can yeah. stick in you. you know. So I, I do think that first sonorities i suppose can be kind of like an earworm or, or a thing that you can definitely yeah think about what it sounds like at any given moment great great yeah. the only other thing i wanted to comment on and listening to david harrington's interview again is that here's a guy who's reading about beethoven's early quartets at the age of 12 <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. There's something about his future as a musician, right? Yeah. Well, that, at a yeah. very young age, he is into this. No, for sure. I mean, and that you know, that's yeah. There are when I was a TA at the Eastman School of Music, I had you know students who 
Yeah, for my 16th birthday, I got this George Crumb score. You know, it's right. like, yes. okay, <laughs> yeah. great. <laughs> so, I mean, you know. Not, not, was not my experience. Uh, right, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, yeah. I, do, I do think that, you know, there's, I don't want to say that it's a whole other world because we can all love and experience music uh, very deeply without being like a musical yeah expert or savant or whatever I I think also our our generation you know we grew up in the 20th century pre-internet and and so we weren't able to just allow the internet to take us to wherever to hear literally anything at at the click of a button in a way that uh, many people now many young people now are able to do that so there's there's going to be a changed hearing from that Mm -hmm. and uh, and and that'll affect memory uh, as well but but David Harrington is just so precocious yeah yeah So we want to express our thanks to Don Trout, professor of music at the University of Arizona School of Music, for being with us as our guest on this episode of our Lifetimes of Listening podcast. Don, thanks very much for being with us today. Oh, it's it's been my pleasure. Always good to see you, too. And thank you for sharing the fascinating stories from the work you've done. Keep it up. Great. Thank you. Thanks. What's coming up on future episodes of Lifetimes of Listening? In upcoming episodes, we'll talk with several accomplished musical performers about their most important musical influences. Performers, recording artists, mentors that have inspired them to become better musicians. And we have some other uh, other themes that are emerging from the archive, including the theme of musical memories about homesickness. We've also uh, found that some of our uh, subjects, interview subjects, have shared with us things about specifically musical memorials, occasions on which music has connected them to a loved one that they've lost, perhaps. So those topics and others that we're still considering in future editions of Lifetimes of Listening. So how can you get involved? Well, first, start by going to our website, musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. You can also Google Lifetimes of Listening, and it should pop up in many cases. Um, where you can submit a musical memory of your own through a sound file, through a written description. You can also ask us um, to set up an appointment where we would record record you in person. Um, you could also suggest a person that you would like us to reach out to and ask them about a musical memory. Thank you for being with us today. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz, and that's this installment of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and Podcast. Thanks for being here. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu.
This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. 